Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Though telling scary stories in print and on film and television is my job, it is also my passion. I love the genre that offers so many imaginative ways to express the human condition, to confront fears, to tap into the deepest emotions that we can experience. I enjoy stepping into a dark world that holds keys to the light. Or not. I've felt this way since I was a kid, and it's not changing anytime soon. So many of the people who write or make films for a living share this passion, but not all of them. Many people think that the horror genre is the easiest path to success in the industry, and choose it for that very reason. Or others have some success in the genre and find that's the only work that they are offered after that. There are not a lot of actors who are huge horror fans and seek out genre roles to play. Despite the popularity of our genre, it still has the taint of the gutter, unless it spawns a franchise. But that's not always the case. Sometimes I come across an actor who truly loves this, cares about it, studies it, immerses him or herself in it. When I was casting The Shining miniseries 20 years ago and met Stephen Weber, I was immediately impressed by his knowledge about the work of Stephen King, but also about his passion for the genre beyond King. Even the mainstream movie-going and TV-watching public know and love King. But as I got to know Weber, I discovered his love for the work of Dario Argento, his passion for Barker and Matheson and creepy comics, and all the books and movies and shows that led me to fall in love with the darker side of entertainment. It was Weber who suggested Jennifer as an episode of Masters of Horror from a 1970s story in Creepy that had been illustrated by Bernie Wrightson. Weber wrote the script and starred in the episode directed by none other than Dario Argento himself. We've worked together a handful of times, and I hope there will be many more. He's brilliant, and he's funny, and he's one of us, as you'll discover right after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. So, Steve, your father was a comic and a manager uh, in the Borscht Belt days, right? Well, he wasn't. No, he wasn't a comedian. Um, he was a, a manager of comedians, an right. agent. And, oh, I uh, thought he did both. No, no. Oh, okay. In fact, I mean, the weird thing was that while he had, a, I guess, a stable of comedians uh, who he would um, uh, give advice to, or you know, or kind of, or whose careers he would try to sculpt. He himself was not the funniest guy I ever met in my life, <laughs> no. and uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, he was an agent. His father was an agent and manager who handled uh, uh, young Jackie Gleason, uh, Don Rickles. Wow. And, um, and uh, he was a Woody Allen character. It, well, he was. In, in many ways, um, Broadway Danny Rose, which is one of my favorite of Woody Allen's movies, uh, gives a f- Reasonably accurate portrayal of the kind of life my father and grandfather led, not as low rent as in the movie, but hovering right. dangerously close. Oh, really? Yeah. So despite people like Jackie Gleason and the like, it was still kind of teetering? Well, I mean my experience – and I was a young kid at the time and I observed uh, – was that there was always a kind of a component of seediness um, hmm. in the in the world and and, and it's – 
It's a component that is even in theater and always has been, let's say, in regular theatrical um, uh, productions where you have this gloriousness on stage and right. fabulous actors and they're beautiful. And then when you go backstage into almost – it's almost like catacombs. You go through the basement. <laughs> you, you go into their crappy dressing rooms and – and so then they gritty. take off the it's gritty and they take off their makeup and in the case of the comedians that I uh, saw a bunch of times when I was a kid and I was privy to the backstage uh perspective you know guys these these um tuxedo clad comedians who had a degree of finesse on stage would go backstage have a have a scotch, take off their shirts, take off their girdles, take off. It was disgusting. You know, it was kind of horrible. And so, and that that aspect has kind of stayed stayed with me, and kind of permeated my. Uh, uh, it, well, it, it almost adds to the appeal, right? Say, of all that stuff, yeah. But your mother was a lounge singer, right? She was. She was a a really gifted uh, nightclub singer, and uh, very young at the time, and uh, appeared on and won several. Uh, talent shows, Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, which mm-hmm. is the equivalent of, I guess, uh, American Idol today, right, sure. you know, seen by literally millions of people. Um, and uh, she won and then uh, married my my father. And as women did in those days, they kind of uh, uh, subverted their trajectories in favor of the husbands. and it, Became it, a housewife? Yeah. You know, and sadly, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously grateful for her as my mom. But looking back, uh, she kind of had her artistic um, designs thwarted. Somewhat. So she gave up her career to yeah, become gave a wife up her and career. mother. That's right. That's right. So, what was it? When were the first stirrings mm. of your interest in the genre, in the horror genre? I will tell you. Um, early on, uh, my father, who was a film fan, um, I remember his favorite film was um, uh, "She Wore a Yellow Ribbon," mm. uh, which uh, has carried over into my life, and I've it's shown my son Howard Hawks movie. Uh, John Ford. Uh, John Ford movie. John Sorry. Ford. And um, how could I mix that? Oh, you yeah. uh, get me out of here. Yeah, okay. And um, and he had a bunch of film books, and one of them was this seminal book by a um, uh, film critic named uh, William K. Everson. Oh, and yes. This book was called The Bad Guys. Mm-hmm. And in The Bad Guys, which is still available, there it is a gorgeous collection of uh, I want to say black and white uh, footage from you know Edison's Frankenstein all right. the way up to I guess 1970 let's say right and I would read this constantly and I just I wasn't repelled by some of the images they were they were sort of loving images mm-hmm. but some were quite creepy and scary I mean I remember in particular it was uh, I think Peter Lorre's Mad Love and uh, the, the, the lot silver of, hand holy that, smokes yeah. you know mm-hmm. Dr. Gogol cut off my head you know yeah. put it back it's uh, not Dr. Gogol Dr. Gogol put it back right. anyway just a lot of amazing photography and amazing imagery, and I just sparked to it, and that really got me started. Were you an only child? No, um, I uh, had a sister who was three years older. Sadly, she passed away in 1990. Oh, um, she didn't particularly share my my interest in that kind of horror genre, which began mm-hmm. to flower. Um, I really felt uh, unique to the rest of my buddies who were playing, you know, punch ball or baseball, and I, which I participated in, but my my uh, my favorite thing to do was was read uh, books about these movies, which I didn't ha- have the money or opportunity to see. It's not like right. it was not the there was no internet, obviously, and right. uh, they weren't shown that frequently on TV. Although there were, you know, weekly. Uh, I grew up in the New York area. In New York, uh, there there were weekly programs dedicated to horror films. Right, there'd be the late night uh, Friday night. That's movie right. And, That's right. Yeah. And so you would circle the movies in TV Guide. Oh, and stay TV up Guide, late. man, <laughs> stay up late. And uh, sometimes they, uh, there was one show that was on WPIX called Chiller Theater, which oh, yeah. even the opening credits scared the crap out of me. It was a, <laughs> it was a uh, you know stop motion animation of a of a six-fingered hand coming out of the oh. ground. And I was – it really used to creep me out. Uh, and that was, I think, on at 6 p.m. or 8 p.m. Wow. But then later on, yeah, they, when I well, got Well, six, older, they could hold up the six-fingered the, hand. The, yes. You are a genius. <laughs> you know what to do, don't you? You really do. <laughs> Only right? with you, Steve. Oh, what? <laughs> so do you remember the first movie that en- enchanted you that was uh, from the darker side? Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, maybe not specifically, but there was a time when I was probably around six or seven, 
and being babysat by my grandmother. And on TV uh, was the Mark of the Vampire, not mm-hmm. the Todd Browning one, but there was another one that was – He remade made, it. Okay. Well, then yeah. it was one in the 50s or oh, something. Oh, in the 50s. Oh, I, 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 I think it was yeah. called Mark of the Vampire. Oh, oh, I know. Yeah. Okay. And also uh, – okay. Here's one. The Manster. The Manster was a yes. Japanese-American kind of co-production. I think it was a Japanese movie, but it Where had an American comes lead. comes out of the shoulder. Holy smokes. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, first, there's an eye on the shoulder right. and, then a, and then a head and then they split. <laughs> and, you know, this was terrifying to me, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop looking at it. Okay. I must have been seven – Seven years old? Did did that captivate you there, and that's where all of your attention started to go? I, I'm afraid so. And then and then <laughs> and then I discovered um, uh, famous monsters of Filmland magazines, Fory right. Ackerman, and devoured those. And then that led to, uh, as I got a little older, comics, creepy and eerie. You know, and Vampirella was a little who oh, you know, that that was <laughs> yeah. that I would just look at, you know, yeah. look at when it was on the on the rack. I look, have, but don't touch. Well, I was I couldn't. Uh, there's no way I could you know reasonably buy that. It was too sexy. Right. But yeah, creepy and eerie, and I began to appreciate uh, not only the content, but uh, not only the uh, the stories, uh, but the artwork. And I fell in right. love with Bernie Wrightson and uh, you know a bunch of other artists. But Wrightson was my god. Back Wrightson was so great. Well, we'll get into the Masters yeah, of okay. Horror episode, but yeah. he also, when I was doing writing the Bullet, which right. was about a young actor, he did all or a young uh, art student. Yeah, he did all of that art student's art. Yeah, we brought him up to Vancouver. He did all the wall oh, paintings. I mean, amazing, 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 amazing. Well, let's talk about that right now. Sure. Um, tell me. About that story, because it was years later we we adapted yeah. it for Masters of Horror. Yeah, one of the amazing stories and well-known stories was called Jennifer. It was written by Bruce Miller, I Bruce think. Bruce Jones. Bruce Jones, I'm sorry. Yeah. Bruce Jones. And um, and it was actually a fairly short story in, in Creepy. Not a lot of dialogue, not a <laughs> lot of – not. but it's about a, a guy that, that discovers a woman about to be murdered in the forest – and uh, the way Bernie Wrightson rendered these characters, you know, they're beautiful. Lots of shadow, lots of lots of overhead lighting, lots of incredibly beautiful anatomy. Well, it just mm-hmm. turns out that he happened to render the character of Jennifer to be extremely pulchritudinous, and uh, <laughs> you know, and her, of course, her face was conspicuously hidden by hair, right. by her 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 long flowing locks, uh, not unlike the ones you're bearing right now. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who don't know, Mick has this mane of white hair, very, very uh, interesting and kind of masculine. Be- beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think that's the yeah, word you're masculine. looking for. You, yeah. you exude masculinity <laughs> most of the time, and um, and so this uh, comic was incredibly uh, uh, enthralling and visually stunning and. Uh, Basically, she's got this hideous face, which he rendered after uh, the designs of the Morlocks in uh, in George Powell's Time Machine, right? right? Very similar to that, but on this gorgeous feminine, you know, physique, and the guy falls under her spell, and at the same time was really repulsed by her, and then she began to demonstrate kind of. Um, uh, really violent, vicious, scary tendencies, mm-hmm. um, uh, cannibalistic tendencies, you know. And and then, of course, he goes crazy. He gets killed and then somebody saves her and the cycle continues. And so you get the, uh, you get the, the notion that she must be some sort of eternal haunting wraith, some character that enslaves men and I mean something supernatural. Supernatural yes. has probably been going on for millennia, I, I like to think. Anyway, you and I were doing uh Desperation. Yep. Ron Perlman. Uh, yeah. and yeah. um our second Stephen King collaboration. Oh gosh, yeah that's right, yeah. that's right. That's right. Charlie Durning, right? Yes. Charlie Durning. And um um and I, I, I forget how it came about, but we were talking. Oh, yeah, you told me about your upcoming Masters of Horror project, with, which assembled all these great directors, you among them, Dario and John Landis. And I, and I don't know how it came up, but I think 
the the idea for Jennifer, I, I may have given to you. I, I guess I did. You did, yeah. It was your idea, and to uh, do and that. then you kind of hit it back with a, a ping pong paddle. Why don't you write it? And I, you know, and <laughs> that's me I, and my when my I finished, producer. Yeah, hey kid, <laughs> with through my cigar. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, kid, listen, uh, and uh, sign your life away. <laughs> Um, and I said, oh, okay, okay, okay. And I wrote a version of it. And of course, it, you know, it changed and went through uh, little evolutions. Um, even Dario uh, took, I think, the final, uh, the final swipe at it in which he inserted uh, several uh, darker sequences than even <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> had been in the original story that I, I think I came up with, you and I came up with. I think he kind of, uh, he added some particularly, uh, Gruesome, sexy, some, weird yes. crap in there. Well, it was an Argento film. After it all, was yes. well, and of course, when um, after after the uh, the writing of it and developing of it, etc. And then when you said that Argento was going to do it, well, then I, I I kind of I didn't know what to do with myself. Yeah, we had to have you star. Well, uh, I, yeah. It, yeah, it was great. It's part of the deal. Yeah. It was great. It was great. And uh, I know. That you were a huge Argento fan before, yeah. and when you found out, you were really excited. About I, I was excited. Suspiria having been one of the kind of seminal discomforting <laughs> horror moments <laughs> in my life, I, I still kind of it makes me shudder a bit. But I also remember your draft <clears throat> had a lot of very witty and clever dialogue. Ah, and okay. Uh, okay. and that a lot of it hit the the, the floor uh, yeah, before we started shooting because yeah. Dario's English. Um, was a little bit limited, and I don't think he appreciated uh, a, a lot of how much wit was in that. But he also likes to carve away dialogue. I guess so. And I know it was a little bit painful for you to lose some of that. Well, look, you're a writer, prolific writer, and uh, and and I've written a few things uh, since, before and since, actually, and. Uh, it's a singularly painful process. Yeah. Uh, not not only the writing process, which I find very uncomfortable, but what happens afterwards. Yeah, I mean, uh, your your writing becomes a thing that is passed around, yeah. you know, like a football or, or <laughs> like, oh, shit, you know, and everybody's fingerprints is on it. But you know what? At the end of the day, it got made and I, I'm proud of it. And, and you're the star of it as well as the writer. I, and it's that, was, that was the least of it, I got to say. I, when yeah. I think of uh, uh, Jennifer, that episode in Masters of Horror, I don't think of me in it as much. Really? You know, I, I think of Dario. I think of the writing. I think of working with you. Um, was it expected that you would go into the entertainment business since both of your parents had been such a big part of it? Not necessarily. Um, uh, I, once I started showing um, uh, tendencies to, toward that particular interest, uh, it was accepted and uh, uh, encouraged. Uh, rather, it was not discouraged. Right. Put it that way. It was right. kind of benign neglect in a way. And, <laughs> and, um, uh, but, but it just seemed to be the thing that was giving me a bit of an identity uh, starting as a, as a young kid doing plays in school and stuff. Um, I did some commercials when I was about 10 or 11 uh, that ran. Uh, a couple of them ran. One was a GAF Viewmaster commercial. Oh, this man. wasn't with Henry Fonda, but right. it was in that same world. And uh, you know, and I, and I got my first exposure to uh, being on set, and it was really fascinating to me. But I wasn't obsessed with it. It right. just seemed to be something that I was able to do. It was then, natural. Did your sister also go into? No, no, no. She she actually had a uh, a developing um, uh, visual sense in terms of color and design, and that's an area that she wanted to go into. Mm. Um, I, you know, all these things, especially in the arts, I think requires. Uh, a kind of focus and drive. She didn't necessarily, she hadn't found it yet, even by the time her life ended. I mean, she was, maybe she would have gone on into it. But I just found for myself that I had this path that was, that I was able to, to tread. Um, right. And again, I wasn't, I wasn't fiercely devoted to it. You I weren't was just, driven. wasn't driven. Even as, as a 12-year-old, yeah, I was yeah, walking yeah. around with a skull in my hand. <laughs> but you were fascinated. I was fascinated and I was fascinated by performers and acting uh, performances. And as a young guy, I guess probably at around 10 or 11, I remember my mom took me and my sister to see a production of Hair on Broadway. Uh, wow. The classic, the seminal, seminal, I keep saying seminal. Yeah. The classic production. And, uh, and I got another hit there uh, by being in the theater and, and, and uh, getting that, uh, being exposed to that energy that is palpable. 
Was theater really your first choice, the the place you wanted to be, or was film something you wanted to eventually do? Uh, You know, I hadn't – as a younger person, I hadn't really delineated, you know, uh, between theater and film. And in fact, when I went to the High School of Performing Arts, which was my first real formal uh, foray into studying, uh, you know, that – that world or being involved in that world, it was all theater based. It had very little to do with film at all. Um, and uh, in fact, you know, film is something that I still struggle with because, um, you know, I, I, you, I don't get enough time to really work at it. You know, and theater was something that I had much more experience working in. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Did you ever, I mean, your sense of humor has always been evident in many of your performances, your long-lived series, Wings, yeah. it was a comedic role. Did you do stand-up? Uh, I never formally did stand-up, although uh, like uh, because of my, my childhood, the comedians uh, were, I guess, in my world. Um, I did stand-up once on a dare at hmm. Catch a Rising Star. It wasn't amateur night. It was uh, I was sandwiched briefly in between two comics on a regular night and I think I did about six minutes of horrific material <laughs> and uh, which uh, half the audience laughed at because they're programmed to laugh because, hey, we're out at a comedy club, right. Myrtle. Let's laugh. <laughs> Myrtle. Uh, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't think of all the retro names that will ever make a comeback. But uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and then half the audience just didn't like it and it was absolutely terrifying to me and yeah. I never went back to do it. I've been encouraged recently by people to do it. I said, forget it. Well, you're a very funny guy. That's very but, kind of you. Well, you. and it's interesting because your greatest fame at the time I met you was as the star of Wings, yeah. which was a sitcom that ran for years, which I had never seen at right. that time. And it was when we were casting for Jack Torrance. Yeah. And um, – I don't know what the reaction would have been if I had known you as a comedy actor mm. before that, if I would have been as as excited by the idea of Stephen Weber playing Jack Torrance. Yeah. Well, well, that's – I mean look, I mean, that, that preconception is a funny thing that dogs, actors, have you uh, had writers too. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I, it goes on for me today too. Uh, that's why I, I really like to go in and audition in the flesh right? rather than be on a list of names or – Which know. established actors rarely do. Um, You're but, right. But people who are serious about it, who want to get outside of the box that they've been placed right. in. I mean they'll, they'll – uh, even though it's been years and years, people will still think of me in terms of wings. Right. Uh, I'm a lot older since then mm-hmm. and have done – and have lived more life. And, yeah. and so it's incumbent upon me to if to make the effort if I want to impress upon a, a casting director that I'm not – the jaunty guy in a mullet anymore, right? You know, right. I'm, I'm different. So uh, you got to go in and and try to burst their notions of who you are. Well, it was kind of an amazing experience on The Shining because we were running up against something I never realized existed, but no actor wanted to put himself in the role that Jack Nicholson had made iconic. Yeah. So we had had a couple of British actors who were interested, and right. it's, it turned right. out that British actors. Do not have the same preconception about television, mm-hmm. television versus features and the like. So, and one of the actors who has since become a rather popular film star said he wanted to do it, mm. and we were going to do it, and he backed out right. at the last minute without ever telling us or his agent. He just never showed up wow. uh, to meetings and and things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we had you come in. It was three days before we were going to start shooting the show. And you came in and Rebecca de Mornay had been cast. And you remember the read that you did with Rebecca and King and I and and Lynn Kressel, the casting director, were all in the the room together. And you blew us away. Wow. Well, uh, that was – look, that was a major moment for me. Um, I I remember those days. And and oddly – the the whole Jack Nicholson element never occurred to me, which may have been just like the Kubrick element didn't occur to me. <laughs> well, did it not? I mean, it's really, the same situation. I, I, just, I just we're making this. That's we're right, not making that. I hadn't yeah. thought about it. Yeah. You know, um, naivete is a wonderful thing. Sometimes. It can be, can yeah. be, <laughs> and, and you know, the, the Shining has been something that um, uh, people still 
think about, see, refer to. Um, I, I hear it a lot. You know, I, I do conventions now, and uh, people, a lot of people, still love that version. They love both versions. You know, they right. can live in a world where both versions exist. Exactly. You know, and which they is, don't contradict one another. They don't. They yeah. complement in many yeah. ways. Um, and and uh, not that you asked, but I, I've always felt that I could go back now. Uh, or rather, now, after having lived some life beyond uh, past the point where we shot um, and finished shooting The Shining, I'd love to go back and redo a bunch of it for me. Yeah. Because now I really kind of understand aspects of that character that I, I just had no grasp on. You know? Well, even at the time, you told me that you understood some of it very personally. And, some of it, yeah. Some of the issues that Jack Torrance faced right. with the, I guess, the alcoholism. Alcoholism, yeah. sure, and, 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 and addiction and, and just and, – and fear and self-loathing or whatever it is, you know, um, that often goes into the, the writing of a character <laughs> – uh, that is written for – written as somebody who's younger but could only contain the elements and the kind of internal understanding of somebody much older. I mean, you know, to me the best uh, um, examples of that are, are Romeo and Juliet, you know, mm-hmm. written for 14 and a 16-year-old right. that no 14, 16-year-old could ever play. Right. You know, right. they must be played by a 40 and 60-year-old, you yeah. know, to get all the nuance and yet, when Stephen King wrote the book, he was the age of the Jack Torrance character that you played. But you're talking about Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's not that. a normal human being. You know, he's a hyper attenuated, uh, <laughs> super being. Very normal human the, being. Well, uh, in, I guess on in the in outside. Most respects. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Uh, well, shockingly, and look, one of my favorite experiences was the fact that he was on the set a lot. He was around. Yeah. And um, and he was accessible to all if they were. Not intimidated by his presence, and he's not an intimidating guy. I mean, I think we were projecting all our. Yeah. But one of the moments I had was that I was able to have the novel in hand while we were shooting, and I've told you this. And and um, I remember uh, up in my scary ass room at the Stanley Hotel, it was <laughs> goddamn terrifying. Anyway, um, uh, I remember reading a, a passage in it. And I've spoken about this, and. Because he writes and writes and writes and writes and it's lyric and it's long and meandering and then catches you and all this stuff. And one of the um, passages had the phrase, Medoc, are you here? I'm sleepwalking again, my dear. The vines are crawling under the rugs or something like mm-hmm. that. I might be paraphrasing. And I thought, wow, that's beautiful. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> hey! Stephen King's downstairs. <laughs> I'm going to ask him. And a living author, you know, and I was, yeah. I was actually excited. Yeah. And I went down there and I, I, he was shooting something and he yeah. was, you know, kind of lingering and he always had an armful of books. It could be the Tibetan <clears throat> Book of the Dead. It could be Jugs, Home of the Decop. It made, made no difference. <laughs> like, it, the, I don't remember. The, I don't remember jugs, that. But, <laughs> but the point is that he read everything, right? Yeah, I mean, there was yeah. no – Constantly. Constantly. Yeah. And Jugs home of the decap, and uh, <laughs> huh? That's and, awfully f- uh, specific. I, I, that's right. Well, it was, wasn't it? Um, uh, and and I said to him, "Okay, Steve, I got you. Can I ask you something about?" He said, "Yeah, sure." He put down Jugs home of the decap, and he said to me, uh, <laughs> and, "And I read it to him. Medoc, are you here? I'm sleepwalking again, my dear. The vines are moving under the rugs. What? Why? How? What?" And he said, oh, "Okay." Uh, all right, uh, Medoc, are you here? Well, hmm, Medoc's a wine. I was probably drinking at the time. Uh, I yeah, I got I'd red wine. I guess I had a glass of red wine. Okay, uh, Medoc, are you here? I'm sleepwalking. In my yeah, I probably wasn't sleeping so well, so I threw that in. Uh, vines are crawling under rugs. Rugs. Uh, I probably looked down, uh, and there was a vine pattern on the rug. There you go. <laughs> and in I, his producer voice. Yeah. In his producer voice. <laughs> I, and I was. Disappointed and also thrilled that it was yeah. so banal, yeah. you know. And and it gave me it gave me some insight into how a little bit into how he writes, you know. Yeah. He consumes it all, and then later on, we I mean maybe we'll talk about this when I did an audio recording of it. Right. Um, I got a big snapshot. I got a big idea of what of how he wrote because I had to sit with this book for two weeks, reading you know, like six seven hours a day. Uh. And going over and over it, and I began to see what he was doing. Not right. that it. I could do it, but but it all becomes poetry. No, no matter how banal and epic poetry, epic poetry. and everything. Well, I mean, uh, uh, I hope I'm not hijacking your your podcast, but <laughs> it's all about you. We were talking, is it? Yeah. 
Uh, and uh, well, when I read it, which was this, I did an audio book version of it, which has gotten a lot of a lot of uh, exciting oh, it's response, yeah, and, and yeah. I'm proud, really proud of that. Basically, he kind of, as a writer, I felt like he goes into a space, he goes into a room, or the character or the writer goes into a room, figuratively speaking, and with a Polaroid takes a picture of every possible angle of that room, every atom, every molecule, and then he gets to the characters and he does the same with them and he he's able to put it all together somehow. His genius is not just assembling all those pieces but assembling them in the right way that makes it compelling because there's a fuck of a lot of elements that go into his his books. Yeah. I mean, it being one of the most complex. I mean, yeah. That, you know, it's saying one a lot. of the yeah. thickest too. Yeah. Thickest, I mean, you know, 1,200 pages. Stand, yeah. stand, stand is one of, I think, my favorite movie of yours that you've oh, made. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, the the opening of The Stand is one of the greatest openings in any, any not just television, but cinematic. It is... Hair raising. Well, I've told you this. Uh, oh, let's not. Oh, we'll talk about this at home. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I exactly. don't want to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Uh, well, we also did another Stephen King adaptation after that with mm. Desperation, mm-hmm. which was a totally different experience. We weren't locked up in a hotel, right? That's right. But we were out on the open. Out yeah. on the open. Yeah, it was out great. The open in the mines of Bisbee, Arizona. That's right, Bisbee, Arizona, which yeah. is an amazing, amazing town. <laughs> And yeah. uh, great location and great actors, Tom Skerritt and uh, Annabeth Gish. And, uh, it was really great. Well, it was, it was quite a, uh, a, an ensemble cast mm-hmm. this time. There mm-hmm. was no one star around everything right. and everybody was kind of sharing it. And Henry Thomas, of course, gets I mean, killed yeah. off early. That's right. That's right that's he's right. in our current episode. Really? That's running yeah, he's become a friend. He's a great guy. He's such a great guy. Great musician too. Yes, yeah. uh, we talked about that and uh, his former bagpipe band that he doesn't do anymore. Thank God. Now, what about you and music? Me and music. Um, well, I guess uh, I I always liked to sing and used to kind of fantasize about being a crooner of some description. Mm-hmm. But um, I was able to kind of incorporate it into my career. I did a production of Hair uh, out in L.A. in, right. I want to say, 1999. Mm-hmm. That was very well received. It was my first uh, musical that I'd done. And then... Had you sung on stage before? I hadn't really sung on stage. So I actually, that's a pretty major It was pretty major. Um, to... I actually did a movie called Late Last Night, which was a Steve Brill movie with um, um, Emilio Estevez and me. It's a pretty good movie. I really liked it. And in it, there's a... Uh, a, a kind of a drug a hallucination sequence that Emilio has where I'm at a party. We're at, we're at a party together and I burst into um, Somebody to Love by Queen. Yeah, and I yeah. sang it, you know, and I wow. sang it in Freddie Mercury's, uh, you know, key and I did it. I'm not saying it was Amazing. pretty, but I, I did it. And so that was really my first foray. And then came um, uh, Hair. And then uh, in 2002, I was uh, the first um, – replacement of Matthew Broderick and the producers on Broadway. Right, so right. So you actually did Broadway, yeah. a Broadway musical, yeah. a huge Broadway enormous, musical. Enormous I mean, enormous. how intimidating is that? First of all, hair, not only are you singing in front of a giant theater, but you're yeah. naked in front At of a giant At one point, theater. we were naked. Yeah, At it was pretty point, wild. Which is one of the things that was hair was so famous for back <laughs> That's in right. That's 1969. That's right. In 1969, there was lots of hair, too. It's different, <laughs> different time. Like we had to encourage the cast and, you know, uh, 1999 to to grow their pubic hair back, please. <laughs> Just don't shave it. Come on. But also another great thing about your career is your willingness to do the oddball, to do theater, yeah. to do television, to do features, and and you know it. There is no typecasting <clears throat> for Stephen Weber. Well, I I I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I've tried to be as versatile as possible, uh, and and yeah, and been able to. Um, I'm, I guess I'm uh, far less fearful in performance than I am in my regular <laughs> Your life. life. Um, and, uh, and, and similarly to The Shining, uh, even uh, with the producers, I didn't seem to be, and maybe I should have been, uh, intimidated uh, right. doing that show. Um, I had, by that time, I had already worked with Mel Brooks on Dracula Dead and Loving It, right. so I had a familiarity with him, and mm-hmm. that didn't hurt. 
and yeah. uh, a bit of a friendship too. So, um, and I worked for Mel Brooks writing The Fly too. You did? Yes, because I worked with Mel Brooks. No, I, mm. yeah, so. Anyway, it was a, an amazing experience. As, as you know, he's an incredibly articulate and deep and intellectual guy. Oh, yeah. And extremely well-read. Very well-read. And you think of him as you know doing 2,000-year-old man routines and blazing saddles right. and, and farting around the campfire. That's right. That's right. Uh, which he is also. He is that. But how great for you to do the lead in a Mel Brooks movie? What was that experience like? I, I wouldn't say it was the lead. I was the I was the uh, you know the the, the the male. That's right. I was one of the ensemble, uh, and yeah. I was uh, and and the quintessential character, Jonathan Harker. You know, I did a yeah. I, I did a crappy English accent, but it didn't matter. You know, it was um, was it supposed to be a crappy? English no, accent? I actually tried hard to do it. I uh, but I did. But it came out lousy. Um, uh, me and Amy Yazbek and. It's a funny movie and the staking scenes are outrageous. Well, I also I have to tell you, um, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't rank it in one of his best movies. You know, it lacks I think a lot of nuance. There's, there's love in it yeah. uh, and, and, uh, and, and if you're a Mel Brooks fan, it, you, there's a lot to be derived from it. But several years ago, he was honored at uh, AFI and, uh, and I was uh, able to bring uh, my two sons there who, who were younger at the time. Um, and 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 come to this amazing event that was at, it was in Hollywood and every star was there and they had uh, you know speeches by people and Martin Short did a live number and and then they had a filmed segment where they were interviewing him and he was talking about his career and of course they showed clips from Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and Twelve Chairs and the producers etc cetera, etc cetera. Elephant Man of course and finally towards the end of it they asked him they said. Uh, uh, from all your films, what is your favorite? What is the, the moment you think is the funniest? And I was sitting there and, and he said, uh, well, in Dracula Dead and Loving It, Stephen Weber gets covered with blood and I'm sitting there like, what? <laughs> and they showed it. They showed the thing, the, the, the clip, which is really funny. It's really funny. And, and my young son Alfie turned to me and said, Papa, that's you. Like even he couldn't believe it. I think he was eleven, and he, he, you know, it was outrageous that I should be, you know, in the in his favorite scene. And and I looked around this audience, and you know, Morgan Freeman was there, and Terry Gar. And I think they were all looking. They were puzzled. <laughs> yes. What? Wait, that's his choice. Him, the TV guy, the low rent comic. Okay, fine. Uh, and that was a huge moment for me. <laughs> huge, huge. Well, that scene is incredibly sanguinary. I mean, there's more <laughs> blood literally. In that scene I, I mean, Jesus Christ! Than in yeah. any David Cronenberg movie. <laughs> it's quite it's amazing. huge. It was it was huge. It was a great day. I remember it. Oh man, it was good. Well, The Shining also led to another King project. You mm. did an Outer Limits, the Becca Paulson That's that you right. wrote and directed. I, right? Yes, yes. It was the first time I had directed something and uh, thinking, oh, God, a chimp could do this. <laughs> uh, I was mis- mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there was. Glad to hear that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it, was a short, it was a short story that I found in a, a book, and I was given the opportunity to direct something. You know, back in the day when cable was still sort of just. Um, not that cool yet. Yeah. And uh, this was Showtime. This yeah. was Showtime, and, and Jerry Offsay was uh, president of it. And he was really lovely, and it was before you know Showtime and HBO got this incredible cred, if that's a you know mm-hmm. credible, incredible credibility that they now have, uh, where they were basically saying, "Ah, right, you want to direct something? Go ahead. We could do it." You know, and so, sure, kid, sure, kid. <laughs> Mick Garris, you know him. If he could do it, anybody, Chimp could do it. Next, <laughs> uh, and uh, and so yeah, I adapted this uh, short story. I had to make some crucial changes in it because in the original story, which is called Revelations of Becca Paulson, uh, the character of Becca Paulson is um, is entranced by. Uh, I think a picture of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and uh, and of course, uh, you know, management wasn't having that, so we right. we made some changes and it was fine. It worked out, and I was able to work with Catherine O'Hara, mm-hmm. uh, John Deal, and a host of great uh, Canadian players, actors, and had an amazing time. Um, I then went on to do something else for The Outer Limits, which was a dismal failure. Oh, no. <laughs> I just yeah. didn't know what to do. I did not know what to do. Really? You know, I mean, in a way, the, the, the Becca Paulson episode. Which turned out great. It was pretty good. It was pretty it was good. Really good. Um, 
look, was buoyed by the story and by the actors, and I didn't have to do that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one I did was just not – I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to get out of it. I, as mm-hmm. a director, it wasn't just showing up. Right. I had to right. – if I was a director – You actually had to plan You everything. had to do something yeah. and figure out a way. I mean how to – you know, sometimes like uh, you're on a you're on a ship, I guess, a director, and if you hit uh, a reef or something comes up, you better know what the hell to do. I had no idea what to do. Mm. <laughs> oh, so I'm you sorry. did not get bitten by the bug. I, you know, I, I again, <clears throat> after many years, I, I know I can go back and and do it now. But the funny thing about show business is that often you will get opportunities, and if you don't stay at it, somebody else will come in and. Take that opportunity, and and it's hard to get back into that. Right. It's hard to find your way back. Well, and yet you're one of the most working actors I know. You're always doing it. Um, But it was was soap opera your beginning? Was that soap opera was the first, uh, I guess, paying job that I had out of college. I went to State University at uh, Purchase, New York, which has got a great theater and film program, Mm -hmm. dance. And, uh, and I immediately went into um, a theater, uh, uh, Circle uh, circle Rep with uh, um, Geraldine Page was wow. uh, in, in it. Yeah, so I worked with her. But then um, I was on As the World Turns uh, with Julianne Moore. We were a couple. Really? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and an, uh, oh. an ostentatious debut. Well, it was an ostentatious. She was great. And, <clears throat> and um, I was exposed to that world, which I loved, which had a kind of a live TV feel of the 1950s. You know, this was the 1980s. And, so you're doing a whole show in a day. Oh, basically. my God. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you learn reams of lines and you see people who've been on it since radio. And, <laughs> and so, and, and, you know, and it was it was uh, it was quite lovely. So soap was really my initiation into, I guess, into it. Yeah. But your first film role was um, – um, oh, the Matt Dillon movie. Oh, Flamingo, oh, Flamingo Kid. Kid. Flamingo Kid, right? I, I'm trying to think. Was it my first film? I guess it was my first big, quote-unquote, film role. Yeah. Uh, I did a small film called Walls of Glass with the great actor Philip Bosco. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, an independent film. But, a yeah. big Broadway star. Yeah, yeah. big Broadway star. Um, uh, but yeah, Flamingo Kid with Matt Dillon and Richard Crenna and um, <laughs> Marissa Tomei had a little small – Wow. I, maybe it was even unbilled. You know, she was just a cute girl in the beach right, club. Right, right. Uh, Fisher Stevens was in a Bronson Pinchot and it was a, it's, it's still a great movie. Hector Elizondo. I mean it's a great comedy, a great yeah, movie. Yeah. Um, and I had one line which I improvised. Was which that Gary kept Marshall? In. Gary yeah, Marshall directed yeah. it. And uh, it was fantastic. We had to shoot at a at a beach club in summer. I mean, what a great job that was! Yeah. And it was set in the '60s, so everybody was decked out. And uh, my one line was a uh, "Keep your hands off the popcorn." <laughs> they left it in. It was nice. great. Yeah, nice. um, that was my first big film, and I got to ride to and from the set with a bunch of these amazing um, character actors: Joe Grafasi and oh, wow. um, uh, Richard Stahl, who was a a staple in kind of 60s, 70s TV. You've yeah. seen him bald and kind of uh, obnoxious guy with a slight <laughs> lisp. Um, a bunch of actors, Seth Allen, who was in Catch-22. So, you know, I was right. really getting uh, exposed to the... And an education. Oh, yeah, I mean, hugely educational, yeah. Yeah, so... What was the direction that you hoped to follow? Was there – did you hope to get into genre films? Did you hope to do comedy, a drama, a leading man, yeah. character? I have to say in, in retrospect, I think it was probably something – well, it's it's definitely something I regret that I did not have a plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was sort of uh, like a like a leaf blown by the wind kind of and it, it, it was – I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh well, it depends. I think it – because after a while, the, the, the winds, the gusts, they if they die down, then what? Mm, and yeah. after years of doing well and yeah. finding myself in areas, you know, I kind of got into comedy. I didn't choose to do it. I was just, I guess, able to audition reasonably well. I mean, I, in, in that – for that – for Wings, I could have the, the next day auditioned for ER, let's say. Right, gone right. down there and, mm. and um, gone down that path. Um, I think in retrospect, I I, I I wish I'd had more of a, um, uh, 
I guess more of a, a, focus. a focus, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Where do you think that focus would have been if you had it to do over yeah. now? If I had to do over now, I think I would have been more of a serious dramatic actor um, if uh-huh. I'd had a sense of myself. And oddly enough, uh, I, I was actually kind of always embarrassed to be an actor, okay? Really? Embarrassed to In admit it. In what way? Did you not think there was enough work to it, that there was not no, I, I, enough I, substantial? It was more like I was worried how I was going to be perceived by mm. people. Mm. And also, uh, just to be mildly psychological, uh, I think I had issues with a fear of success. Interesting. Uh, which is to say that I was embarrassed that I was getting such good um, attention, such positive affirmation as opposed to uh, – to bring up my, my late sister, uh, my sister Abby, mm-hmm. who had a very different kind of life uh, than I was experiencing. She had a darker kind of a childhood. Mm. Uh, she wasn't as um, uh, flamboyant as I was right. or eager to go on stage. She was quieter. Eager to please. That's yeah. right. Eager to please. She was quieter, darker. She was having some shit with my father and my mother at the time and – and uh, it was the 70s and there, there's probably weed involved and cigarettes mm-hmm. and she was hanging out with a bunch of long hairs who, <laughs> P.S., were probably great guys. And, right. And um, so there was that. And I was able to disappear uh, or deflect into – by going – by enjoying my horror movies and, yeah. and uh, doing commercials and getting all this affirmation. You know, I was getting a lot of – a watering flower that I was that she didn't get. And so I think it fed into whatever success or or business I was going into uh, in show business, and I felt guilty about it. Do you think that's why you became an actor, to get that kind of affirmation and to get that kind of uh, um, approbation? Yeah, I certainly think that uh, it, it went into it. Um, uh, you know, I was getting a, a, a like, yeah, yeah. Uh, if it feels good, you keep returning to that well, and it was feeling good to me. And also I was developing a kind of, I guess, an ability. And so I was seeing, maybe not so consciously, but I was, I was able to see that, oh, yeah, I can do this. This is where I guess I'll go. Were you a popular kid in school? Were you a class clown? I was a class clown. I wouldn't say I was a popular kid in school, but um, uh, certainly in you know junior high school and elementary school, I guess I had my moments of class clowning. But – I didn't necessarily stand out. Uh, high school performing arts, um, I had a great time and I found that I was starting to get lead roles in, in little kind of in-house productions that they were doing at school. So and that was kind of the point of that school anyway. It was. It yeah. was. But I mean it, it was uh, – <clears throat> and funny, recently I saw the movie Fame, which was uh, about that school. Thinking, oh, this will be a fun movie. You know, that's a dark goddamn film too, it's man. It's a very dark it film. It is dark. Yeah, we danced on cars and did all that shit. Right. But, uh, Holy smokes, it gets pretty pretty bleak. Well, recently – I mean I, <clears throat> I love the show Get Shorty, which oh, good. it's on a network that not many people get. Yeah. But I think the first season is now on Netflix. It, yeah, they finally did something where it's now on uh, Netflix. It was on Epics, which right. you know, I, I So they've done two you. seasons of it, right? Two seasons. Yeah. They're going to do a third, yeah. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a part in the second season. Yeah. And it's phenomenal. And anyone who's not seen the show, it's way better than the movie. Ah, interesting. And, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And I think it has its own personality yeah. that – it, it, the cast is fantastic. Ray Romano is yeah. it. And, Chris and O'Dowd. Chris O'Dowd is fantastic. Yeah, it's great. It's uh, great. But you play something you've been doing a little bit more of. You play <laughs> a, an asshole. I do. A, uh, a studio executive who yeah. is just like the epitome of every bad story you've heard about studio yeah. executives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost, I would say almost every bad story. Uh, you know, uh, Wait, I have Joel Silver stories that are <laughs> Okay, worse. wow, so, okay. Well, uh, uh, I, I'm not going to say anything bad about Joel Silver because I oh, still I might would. end up w- uh, working for him. That's right. Uh, anyway, uh, I think he's a great guy. And I, and I, 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 I disagree with you viciously on this point. <laughs> okay. Oh, I but, love him. But tell yeah. me afterwards. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I have found that I've been playing, I want to say for the last 15 years, uh, fewer and fewer jaunty comic roles and the uh, uh, kind of role that I affectionately call a douchebag in a suit, <laughs> uh, which is like the movie Man on a Swing. <laughs> douchebag in a suit. Yes. And uh, uh, for some reason, I'm now playing go-to dickheads of um, varying authoritarian 
tendencies, whether I'm a high school principal or a DA or a uh, studio head or, you know, or something like that, you know, or an executive of some type. I just play and I haven't got executive ability in me at all. <laughs> okay. You know, and I don't think I'm a douchebag necessarily. So well, it's a weird thing. You're not I'm a not a douchebag. Douche uh, but. I don't know why I keep getting these things. I mean, I did a series, uh, one season, woefully, of this series called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which is great. Aaron Sorkin's show. You great. Know, great show. Some of it was great. Some was struggling. Could have definitely used another season, you know, yeah, but I don't yeah. know what happened there. And I played this great character who was a studio head who was kind of a prick, but, you know, as Sorkin, who's just a great writer, he wrote the heart of this guy, and he was an incredibly ethical guy. He wasn't just a villain, right? Uh, but he could be a dick, so and that's complex, where complex, yeah, yeah, complex. And that was that was great to play. But I'm curious about it. Uh, lately, though, I've been playing nicer characters. Uh, um, I played a doctor, an oncologist, which was really nice. Right. Uh, but I have to say um, uh, that I'm I'm in a movie coming out. Easter on Netflix called The Perfection, hmm. which was uh, uh, directed by a fellow named Richard Shepard. And it stars Allison Williams and Logan Browning. And uh, and it's a return to form because I play a nasty mofo. <laughs> charming. Always charming. Always charming. There is no Stephen Weber character without charm. Charming. Oh, <laughs> well, I look forward to that. And I just love to see the evolution of your career taking place because I haven't seen you make a wrong turn. You oh, know, you, nice. you can step into anything. Well, and you've pull been responsible off. for a lot of my career, so thank uh, you. And what you've stepped in. Yeah, that's a- <laughs> but, anyway, but I want to thank you for joining us oh, here. And I can't wait to the next time we work Thanks, together. Thanks, Mick. Yeah. I love you. Yeah. Love you too, Steve. Sure. <laughs> Here we are in Hollywood. Yeah. Love you, babe. Love you, babe. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.